And then if you'll also turn to uh, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. It says, He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So for the reading of God's holy word. Well, beloved, I, t- I titled this sermon, A Parable of Two Prayers. I actually thought of titling it, The World's Worst Prayer, but I thought that might be a little bit tongue-in-cheeky, so I decided not to do it. But it's truly one of the worst prayers recorded in Scripture. But then you'll notice that it's followed by one of the very best and most beautiful prayers in Scripture as well. And there's two people that go to pray. They go to the temple to pray here that really represent two different kinds of sinners that there are in the world. There's those who look to God's grace and mercy and Christ alone for their salvation, which is a humble person. And then there's those who look to themselves away from God uh, for their own salvation, and that is a prideful person. And really, it's, uh, this passage is kind of summarizing those two different postures towards God. An arrogant, self-righteous, prideful posture that doesn't recognize their need for a Savior. And then one who recognizes their utter need and dependency and cries out to God for his mercy. And it's reflected here in the parable. And Jesus even sets it up for us. He says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So we really learn something about the context of the parable or what Jesus is going to be addressing by it. He's talking to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, they were self-righteous or they thought they could earn or merit or cooperate or get their salvation in some other way than by faith alone. And that was also manifested in the way that they treated other people. They treated other people with contempt. And so Jesus tells this prayer to make it really clear the difference between the humble and the proud, the difference between the self-righteous who are condemned and those who look to Christ alone for salvation and are righteous in Jesus Christ. And so it starts off quite simply by telling us that two men went up into the temple to pray, which was the most sacred location in all of Israel at the time. They had daily services in the temple, daily sacrifices. They went to the same temple. They went to the same service, but they stood slightly apart. These two men, we're going to compare and contrast, did the same things, but they did them for very different reasons. And it's striking that the only feature that they have in common in their prayer is the word God. Everything else about them is different, as we'll see. So let's look at three things from this passage First, we'll look at a prideful prayer. Second, we'll look at a humble prayer. And third, we'll look at a profound pronouncement. A prideful prayer, a humble prayer, and a profound pronouncement. 
You can also think of them as three different characters. The prideful prayer is the self-righteous person. The humble prayer is the sinner. And the profound pronouncement comes to us from our Lord and Savior, Jesus. But first, let's look at a prideful prayer. The Pharisee, the self-righteous. Pharisees in our day, of course, have, well, if you call someone a Pharisee, it's a derogatory term. But in the ancient Near East in the first century, if you were to call someone a Pharisee, it, was, uh, it, was, it would be in honor. They were the most religiously conservative. They had all the right scruples. They were seeking their very best to honor the Lord, at least in terms of their actions. And this Pharisee went to the temple and he went and he stood off by himself and he prayed this prayer. And he said, God, I thank you. And that is a great start. But it went downhill from there, didn't it? What did he thank God for? Did he thank God for his grace or his love or his mercy or his majesty or his holiness or his creation, a sunrise, a sunset, food, shelter, temple, his word, his faithfulness, his abiding presence for puppies? He didn't thank the Lord for any of those things, did he? He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He's looking down with derision on the other people who are in the temple with them, other covenant members of the community with them. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he starts to list sins in which he had not participated, thus thinking of himself as above them or better or holy or blameless because he didn't do these things. He said, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. In other words, I thank you that I'm not a robber, I'm not a swindler. I didn't violate the Eighth Commandment. I didn't take anything that belongs to somebody else, so I'm good, he thinks. He also said, I thank you that I'm not unjust, which is really anything that falls short of the righteousness that God requires. He thinks that he's keeping the law and being a good person. And he says, I thank you that I'm also not an adulterer. In other words, he hasn't committed any sexual immorality. He hasn't violated the seventh commandment. So in short, he's saying, thank God that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust and I'm not an adulterer. And then he moves from the general to the specific and he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I thank you. I'm not like this tax collector. Can you imagine that poor sap? Right? He came into the temple just like the other guy. Imagine if our, in our silent prayer today that one of you had stood up and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like Danny Miranda. <laughs> right? How awful, even if you thought that, which I hope you don't, but even if you thought that, how horrible to say that out loud. That really says something about you and about your heart and how you think about things. Imagine if you started saying that about one another in the service. Thank God I'm not like so-and-so. You don't really recognize who you are before the Lord. And you don't really recognize who they are before the Lord when you do that. So he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy specifically. And then having offered his self-justification for his standing because of certain things he didn't do, now he starts to say, and here are some positive acts of righteousness that I have done. He says, I fast twice a week. Beloved, that's far more than the law required. He's saying, I've obeyed the law and I've even done more. And then he said, and I give tithes of all that I get. That wasn't required in the law either. You needed to give something, but you didn't have to give tithes of all that you get. 
And so in essence, he's saying, look, I haven't been an extortioner, I haven't been an unjust, I haven't been an adulterer, and I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Some of these things are good as far as they go, right? We are to be honest, we are to be faithful, we are to be just. But note that he only picked and mentioned the things that he obeyed, didn't he? What about all the things that he didn't? What about coveting? What about gossip? What about complaining? What about envy? What about impatience? What about self-righteousness? What about hatred in his heart, which he obviously has here? Right? Sin is easily deceptive. Sometimes we choose to think of the things that we obey or things that we think we're doing well in and think we're doing the whole thing well while we're neglecting some of the weightier matters of the law. Loving the Lord with all of our heart, loving our enemies, loving one another, or some of those other things that we think are respectable sins like envy or impatience. Right? That's not as bad as adultery, we think. And yet all sin is a sin against the Lord and against someone else. So in effect, his prayer is saying, God, I thank you that I'm such a great guy. You are blessed to have me in your kingdom. You're blessed to have me here. Can you imagine? He's really worshiping the unholy trinity, isn't he? He's worshiping me, myself, and I, rather than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, isn't he? Recall Jesus' audience. He tells us that he's talking about this kind of person. This parable is told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Hasn't he just manifested that? He thought that he was righteous by his own works. He said, I didn't do these things and I've done these things. You should be impressed with me. And he's treating others with contempt. Thank God I'm not like that guy that's standing here, also a covenant member with me. When he says that, uh, Jesus says that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, in other words, he's saying that he has no true faith. He's looking to himself for his righteousness rather than outside of himself to a righteousness that is a gift. Let me ask you this, and I, I want you to respond out loud, beloved. Was Father Abraham justified by faith or by works of the law? By faith. Not by works of the law. And you can answer this out loud too. By works of the law, how many people will be justified, beloved? No one. It's impossible. And so this man is thinking that he is able to be justified by something other than faith. And he thinks it's his own works when scripture itself would have told him that's not how it's done. His father Abraham was not justified by works of the law, but through faith. And that is the only way that anyone can ever be justified before God. And so he's really failed the faith test. He doesn't have faith. He has self-righteousness. And he's also treated others with contempt. He has no love for his neighbor. He's really violated uh, commandments um, 5 through 10. Here's another image bearer of God standing there with him in the temple. By his words, by his actions, by his deeds, He's showing that he's treating them as worthless. We're really getting to see his heart here, aren't we? He doesn't love the Lord because he's not looking to him in faith and he doesn't love his neighbor. He has rejection for them. He has disdain for them. He thinks they're beneath his dignity and he's actively mistreating them. Out of the mouth comes what's in the heart 
And what came out of his mouth, even in prayer, reveals what's in his dark heart, doesn't it? You see, the Pharisee compared himself to others, and he thinks that he's doing well. What we're going to find in the second point is that the tax collector compares himself to God and finds he's not doing well. And if you don't take anything else away from this sermon, then get this. It's not that the Pharisee is not far enough along on the road. It's that he's on the wrong road. It's not that he just wasn't doing enough and he wasn't doing it well enough. It's that through works of the law, no one will be righteous. It's on, he's on the wrong road. He's on the road of self-righteousness. He's on the road of works. He's on the road of the law. But through none of those ways will anyone be righteous. So it's not just he hadn't done enough and he hadn't gone far enough and he hadn't tried hard enough and you just need to give it the old college try and dig in and be better. It's that road is the wrong road. He needed to be on a completely different road, which is a road that looks to another for righteousness, that confesses their sins and believes and trusts in another one for their forgiveness and for their righteousness. That is what's being drawn out here. And so now we want to turn to the second point. We looked at a prideful prayer of the, tax, uh, of the Pharisee, and now we want to look at a humble prayer by the tax collector. The tax collector was, at that time, one of the most hated professions. They didn't uh, love their IRS agents in the same way that we really love them today, Right? They needed to collect a tax for Rome, but then in addition to that, they could collect as much as they wanted. They were allowed to keep all the extra. It was a profession that was given to excess. It was given to greed. It was given to unfairness. They were often associated with the most depraved, despised classes of societies when it's talked about in Scripture. The harlots, the drunkards, the gluttons, and the tax collectors. They are the worst. Note the clear contrast between the prayer of the first man and the prayer of the second one. It said, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, and here's one of the most beautiful and profound prayers in all of scripture. God be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognizes that he is a sinner. And he recognizes that what he needs is mercy. He doesn't have any self-confidence here. He's despairing of his self-confidence and he's looking to the Lord. He's penitent. He's repentant. When he compares himself to God, he finds that he's wanting. And he needs something. He needs mercy. The first man, the Pharisee, thought he was in a class by himself, didn't he? He thought, I'm better than everyone else. This gentleman also thinks he's in a class by himself. You could translate what he said literally, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He thinks of himself in a class by himself, someone completely undeserving. And he asks for a specific kind of mercy. The word that's used there is a big big word, theology word. It's used a couple times in scripture called propitiation. It really means he he wants an atonement. He wants a substitute. He wants a sacrifice. He says, God, be propitious to me. Be atoning to me, the sinner. And that idea of propitiation carries with it the idea of the day of atonement. 
when you think back on the ceremonies of, of, of the old covenant when two animals were brought before the priest and the priest prayed and put the, confessed the sins of the people on one of the animals and it ran off into the wilderness signifying that the sins of the people are taken away outside of the city, outside of Jerusalem, outside and away from them. And then the other one, the sins were confessed and that, land, that uh, animal was slaughtered and its blood was spilled on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. Isn't that interesting? Because that's exactly what you needed. You needed a substitute. And so even the old covenant ceremonies and sacrifices that this man would have seen over and over throughout his life on a weekly and daily and yearly basis as they go through these things, he's recognized that he needs a substitute. He recognizes that he needs a sacrifice. But we also know that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away the sins of humanity. It was only meant to point forward to another, to someone who could be a substitute for us. And who is that substitute? Who is that propitiation? Who is that atoning sacrifice? Well, you know, it's the one telling the parable, isn't it? It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, he's actually on his way to Jerusalem right then. When he's telling this parable, he's on the way to Jerusalem to lay down his life, to be a propitiation, to be a sacrifice, to be a substitute for the sins of his people. To bear in his body the condemnation that should have gone out to all of us for all of our lack of love towards the Lord, our lack of love towards our neighbor, our lack of love towards one another in this room, and our lack of love towards our enemies, for all of our failure to obey the law and all of its exacting detail, Jesus took in his flesh the penalty for that. It's remarkable. It was imputed to him. It was put on him. He was crushed for our iniquities. The only time recorded in Scripture where Jesus doesn't call out to the Father as either our Father or my Father is when he's on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because it's in that moment that he's enduring hell. He's enduring the condemnation. He's enduring the wrath that should have been poured out on all of us. And then also... What's remarkable is that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. He did perfectly obey the law. And it's through that merit that we inherit. He perfectly fulfilled the law for us. Not only did he endure the condemnation for our breaking it, but he obeyed it for us on our behalf as our substitute as well. And so certainly you've heard your pastor talk about that marvelous exchange where all of our sins are put on Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us. And so we who are clothed in the filthy rags of our own sin have that taken away and Jesus puts on us a robe of perfect righteousness and we stand before him holy and blameless. And can you imagine being robed in the perfect righteous robe of Jesus and then think, well, now I need to put some merit badges on it. It's absurd. What could you possibly add to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? What could you possibly add to the work and sacrifice of Christ for you and on your behalf? Nothing for your salvation, but the rest of your life from your salvation. Just as we go out and we love and we show mercy and we do acts of goodness, not for God's salvation, but from it. It's part and parcel of who we are as the new creation in Jesus Christ.
And so we see a radical contrast between these two prayers and two men who pray, don't we? The prideful one and the humble one who's looking to the Lord for mercy. And finally, we want to look at a profound pronouncement, which is really our Savior. Notice that the cry for mercy is immediately answered. Jesus didn't say, you knucklehead tax collector, here's 15 other things I want you to do. When you get them all right, then let's talk again. It was answered immediately. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. There wasn't any time for him to clean up his act, was there? It was a gift. It's showing the abundant mercy and the abundant grace and the gregarious nature of what God provides for him. He went down to his house justified. He came in up that day to the temple, guilt-ridden, condemned, troubled by his sin, and he called out a simple prayer, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and he was. And so it is with the Lord that anyone and everyone who calls on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It doesn't matter the things that you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've done them. We tend to think of there are sinners and then there are sinners. At the foot of the cross, we're all level, beloved. We don't have that category. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. It's ridiculous to think, well, who's more dead, right? At the foot of the cross, we're all leveled. Everyone and anyone who calls out on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. How wonderful. There are no half measures with Jesus. This man went down to his house justified, made right with God, no longer under any condemnation, forgiven, declared righteous, adopted. Nothing in all of creation could ever separate us from his love. And so Jesus ends the parable with a king, simple kingdom principle. It's very different from the way the world thinks, but this is how the kingdom thinks. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's what you see here, right? The first man, the Pharisee, came in and he exalted himself. Thank God I'm not like other sinners. You're blessed to have me. I'm awesome. And he was humbled. He did not go away justified. He did not go away right with God. And the other one who humbled himself said, Lord, be merciful to me. Be propitious to me. Be atoning to me. A sinner was exalted. I would say to the right hand of the Father. With Christ to rule and reign forever. Beloved, justification is a matter of God's mercy, not of human merit. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone. It gets easy to try to twist this into something far more complicated than that. And Jesus quite simply says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Repent and believe, and you will be saved. How wonderful. 
And it's that Jesus that we have the privilege to hear about every week here, and that Jesus that we have the privilege to read about in our scriptures, and that Jesus that we have the privilege to go out and share with our neighbors. But I want to close just by turning, turn to chapter 19 in Luke. There's a really marvelous story that just a week after, roughly a week after this encounter where this parable is told, we hear the story of a wee little man named Zacchaeus, a tax collector. We hear his story. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Right? You get that same attitude. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded any of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. So the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What I love about the placement of this story in Scripture is that Jesus just told this terrible this parable about this tax collector who had received mercy. And then here, just a week later, is a man running out. Could, did he hear this story? Did he hear about Jesus? Did he hear about one who forgives and shows mercy to tax collectors? His heart was troubled. He had a guilty conscience. He knew he wanted to see Jesus. Are we painting a portrait of Jesus and sending out a message about Jesus that makes him so beautiful and so lovely and so gracious and so merciful that people can't wait to come tell me about this Jesus. Tell me about the one who is so merciful. Tell me about the one who can forgive somebody like me so that somebody like Zacchaeus climbs up a tree because he can't see him and he wants to see and he wants to hear who is this one that I'm hearing about. And note that Jesus didn't look up and say, I know you're a naughty boy, and here's a list of things that I must do, you must do. He said, come down from there. I must go to your house. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to people like Zacchaeus. He came to people like you and me. And notice that he calls Zacchaeus by name. Zacchaeus, come down. It's a covenant principle here, too. Salvation has come to you and to your household. And he calls them by name, just like he does with all of his sheep. Beloved, for any of you who are sitting here today and you're believing and trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, then you've heard the call of our Savior in the gospel. And you've recognized, not only is that true, but that's true for me. He's my Savior. He's my atoning sacrifice. He's my propitiation. He's my friend. He's my Redeemer. He's my righteousness. He's my hero. He's my Savior. He's coming back. It's a really lovely little story. And then you also hear the hardness of heart in there that Jesus is talking about, isn't there? They were grumbling, some of them. They were standing and grumbling, saying, look, how can he go? Doesn't he know? 
Doesn't he know what Zacchaeus is like? You bet. He knows exactly what Zacchaeus is like. And that's why he came. For people like you, for people like me, for people like Zacchaeus, for people like that tax collector who had no way to get to God, who had no way to be right with God on our own, but we needed God to come to us and to be merciful to us. And he was and is in and through Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for, we thank you that you don't pull any punches in Scripture. You show us both the hardness of our heart and you also show us the goodness and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And Father, we, above all people, should be most, some of the most generous and some of the most humble and some of the most merciful because we recognize that that's how you are towards us. And I pray that that's how we would be. I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. I pray that you would conform us more and more to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is merciful and who is gracious and who is long-suffering. And Father, I pray that we would rejoice in our salvation, that we would rejoice in the fact that we have been forgiven, that we are adopted, that we are loved, that we are declared righteous, and that we are here now and forever. May we live and serve and love in light of the reality that we are free in Christ, now and always. In Jesus' name, amen. And beloved, please stand if you are able and take your Psalter hymnals and let's sing together number 538, Take My Life and Let It Be.